everybody to this brand new podcast, It's a Crazy Life. My name's Sarah and I'm just a crazy lady on a mission to motivate, educate and inspire you on your very own journey to become the best version of yourself. Good afternoon everybody and welcome back to the It's a Crazy Life podcast. As always, my name's Sarah and I will be your host. Today welcomes season three, where we are going deep on depression. As I said at the end of last week's absolutely amazing show, we're going to start with my story. I'm going to be sharing with you what caused the depression, how it has affected my life, how I overcame it, and how I keep it at bay to this very day. I've got to say before I start, this season weirdly has brought up some really crazy feelings. I think going back through everything that I'm about to share with you today and hearing the word depression (laughs) over and over again has caused me to kind of feel a little bit low, shall we say. So I will endeavour to bring you this as positively and as brightly as I can, Um, but I am human and sometimes things get on top. (laughs) So anyway, let's do this. Depression. (laughs) Depression for me is a few things. These symptoms that I am about to describe may upset or hit a nerve with some people, but as always, I strive to be honest, so here goes. Depression for me is rock bottom and darkness, the black hole, as I used to call it, which involved anger, rage, guilt, sadness, loss, pain, feelings of uselessness, negative thinking and noticing, benders, drink and drug induced, arguments, self-sabotage, pushing people away, the victim mode, I become self-absorbed, blame everyone and everything else. And of course, how could I forget the loneliness and unworthiness that goes along with all of that? Depression can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can believe in your mind that you're worthless. Nobody cares, and why would they? You blame everyone who ever hurt you for making you feel this way. You don't want to let people in. You'd rather sit alone with the curtains drawn than talk to anyone about how you're feeling. You don't want to eat, wash, dress, speak to anyone. You feel your best off alone, and that way no one can hurt you. But at the same time, you're desperate for people to come and speak to you, to come and check in if you're okay. The cycle of depression was usually every three years and it always started around my birthday in November and it would take over my life for about a year if I was lucky, sometimes more, all dependent on how I chose to deal with said episode. So I thought that today I would take you through an episode and explain to you how it goes and how I start slipping and why I believe I was depressed for so long. So as I said, it usually started around my birthday. I'd begin to feel irritable, snappy, causing arguments with people in order to push them away. And I would instantly want to get out of my head in whichever way felt necessary at that given time. If an event had caused the wobble, say for instance, a breakup, the first thing that I'd go and do is find a way to remove the emotions that I was feeling, whether that was a bag of weed, a bottle of something, or in severe cases, it would be the cocaine. 
I would then either find people to go and get smashed with in order to have a laugh and forget what was going on. Or in more recent times, when I really had isolated myself just after the breakdown, I, I'd be on my own. I would, in essence, self-harm myself with whatever substance I could whilst beating myself up mentally, asking myself, why am I so useless? And telling myself that I deserve this. This would continue for a few weeks. And then all of a sudden, bam, reality would hit. And everything that I had done in the past three weeks would come crashing down around me and make me feel 300 times worse than I did to start with. You see the session, it feels like a good idea at the time. You suppress your feelings, you push it all outside of you, blame everything and everyone. But sooner or later, reality is coming for you and you have no choice but to face the demon that kicked this all off. Only now you're even lower as alcohol and drugs are in fact depressants. Fact. Because <laughs> that was my downfall. I would succumb to the emotions and let them consume me. I would go off the rails, battling this for a few months, until something in me would snap and I would bounce back, sort my life out for a while before starting the merry-go-round again. <laughs> it did honestly feel like someone up there was testing me, sending me trauma after trauma, instant after instant. And I must admit, I did give up a few times. Like, what was the point? I truly thought at times I'd never amount to anything. So I may as well give up and just be a loser. <laughs> And I, and I honestly, I honestly did feel that way. I, I just felt like, what's the point? What's the point? Keep trying. I'm never amount to be anything. I must have done something wrong in a former life to have been dealt these set of cards. This, this, this emotion would just take over and turn me into a victim. It was so unfair that I had this life. I did not realise that I had it all within me to turn this all around and let the past go for good. Not until I had the breakdown, that is, and I had to put myself back together. Then I truly did learn my lesson. <laughs> so on to the depression. The depression officially started um, back when I was 16. At the age of 16 was the first time I'd been diagnosed as depressed and given a prescription for antidepressants. If you ask me, I've been depressed most of my teen life as it wasn't until my teenage years that I began to see just how strict my dad was and how different our family home was to all of my friends. We always lived in a controlled environment built upon fear and unpredictability. It was a weekly cycle of bullying, humiliation, tellings off and physical and emotional abuse. Every weekend, we knew that one of us or, or all of us would feel the raft. Each weekend, my dad would make a divide. It would always be him and one other, either me, my mom, or my brother, like with him. And then it would be those two against the other two. And I won't lie, I, I was a daddy's girl and my dad, nine times out of 10, would choose me to be on his side and then ask you know, me to join in with him abusing my mom and my brother. And I gotta say, the guilt that I carried for that for so long was a huge part of my depression. I actually blame myself because I didn't get the violence that my mum and my brother did. And it took a long time for me to let go of that guilt. Long time for me to realise it wasn't my guilt. Um, I didn't do that. It wasn't like I, I got off on it and I wanted that to happen. You know, it was a horrible. I mean, he would he would make us all sit there and tell each other that we didn't love each other. I mean, I, I can't begin to, to explain to you how that 
feels um, as a as a child being told, you know, by your mum and your brother that 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 they in fact don't love you. When you know we knew that deep down that you did, but it was still the fact that that was happening. And I've got to say, for me personally, I can't speak for my mum or my brother, obviously, but it was the emotional abuse that messed me up. I could take the beatings. In fact, like I remember sometimes sitting there listening to the interrogation and thinking, I wish it just hit me and sent me to bed <laughs> rather than keep sitting here and listening to it. Because so my dad was a narcissist and I don't know if you know anything about narcissism, but please do feel free to have a look and maybe we'll talk about it in this podcast. A narcissist will beat you down with emotional abuse, make you feel worthless, humiliate you, make you feel like you can't live without them. And eventually you become a slave to their every whim. You become petrified of putting a step wrong and you always have to have an explanation ready that will live up to their expectations. And this this was mental torture for me, Um, always having to be on my toes on eggshells, thinking of the next thing to keep everyone safe because it did feel like... It, it did feel like a survival, a battle of survival daily. I mean, like I just said there about him telling us, getting the other people to, t- like, you know, my mum, my brother to tell me or me to tell them that we didn't love each other. Um, and it, it was these kind of scenarios that become a stuck record in my head. Um, the things that I used to say, the nasty things that I used to say, I was fat. I was useless, I was greedy, I didn't deserve nice things, I was naughty, I wasn't loved, and blah, 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 so on. But this become my story, shall we say. He made me believe I would be nothing without him, and I didn't deserve happiness or love. So I lived up to this story, and I kept living it out as that was what was in my subconscious. You see, when you endure trauma as a child, you create a story for that trauma. And that event causes you to believe something about yourself. And usually it's the abuser's words and not your own. But this can be something which you carry around forever, subconsciously believing it, acting out subconsciously to these stories that you've been told are true for you. And it manifests in some way like, uh, you know, depression or all these other ailments that you can that you can get. And you have no option then but to then either live with that for the rest of your life and be miserable and and unhappy or you get to pull it out of the root and tackle it. The problem is when you have multiple traumas going on and you've assigned a story and a meaning to each one, this can end up in you being the most untrustworthy, unlovable, bad, undeserving person that walks this planet. For me... The depression really started when my dad eventually left. This was when I was approaching 17. Um, And when he left, it was like a bomb had gone off. It sparked something within my brother, my mum and myself. Uh, My mum never really drank alcohol. You know, I think she felt like she had to, you know, keep sane so she knew exactly what was going on to keep us all safe. But when dad left, she got on it. (laughs) She would just sit and drink vodka all night, drink herself into oblivion. My brother went down his path of smoking cannabis and I took a path of self-destruction with alcohol and class A drugs, fighting every weekend and getting arrested, which I've told you before. I suppose to get out of my head felt better than being me with all of this crap going around all the time. It can feel like you're like you're actually torturing yourself, having your own 
mind turn on you and become your biggest bully. Anyway, so it was like we all just rebelled and went wild in our own way. I got really, this is when it really hit and I knew I there was something wrong. I got really down after an argument with a friend one day and me being me, a loose cannon, I marched to the shop and bought a bottle of vodka and took a packet of paracetamol. My brother came in my room and saw what I'd done and he went and got my mum. My mum uh, got the bicarb, <laughs> chucking it down my throat. So I'd throw all the tablets up. And from that, because I, I just couldn't cope anymore, that little argument with my friend, it was nothing, but it made me feel rejected. Like, like I didn't deserve a friendship, like I wasn't good enough to be friends. And I suppose it just brought back all those horrible feelings but now I could do something about them. I didn't have to sit and endure it. I, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. It's a good like 20 years ago now, but still. I went to the doctors, our family doctors that had been my whole family's doctor since birth. And whilst walking into the waiting room, who should be sat there? Only my dad. <laughs> of all the people, all the times, it had to be then. Mum took me out of the waiting room and we sat outside. My heart was pounding. I'll never forget the fear of being sat there and thinking just behind that wall. We got into the room with the doctor and I kind of told him how I was feeling. My mum had to say what I'd done. And also that my dad was in the waiting room. And that was the start. He prescribed me citalopram and referred me for counselling. I walked away <laughs> quite content with the outcome and safe in the knowledge that my dad wasn't following us. I went home, I rang some mates, because of course I'd just seen my dad, so my head was all over the shop, and we got some pills and we went and got off our heads. <laughs> I cannot even imagine having that thought process anymore. I can't, I can't justify what was going through her mind at that time it's just bonkers I suppose and I just I look back and I just want to grab that girl and say come with me if only I knew back then what I know now so anyway a few months later a letter arrived and I went for my first ever counselling session I went to the session with the intention of being honest and trying my best to get some help the guy who I saw was well let's just say we didn't gel <laughs> He was far too stuck up for my liking. <laughs> Don't forget, I, I had a chip on my shoulder and I felt that the world owed me for what I'd been through. I told him all about the drugs and I felt he looked down his nose at me. So safe to say, I never went back. That was my first attempt at counselling. And this is why, even in the show with Anita last week, I said, to, we, we spoke then about people who haven't lived, you know, a life of trauma and, and, and you know, and, and the like. It's sometimes really hard to get a relationship with them if they are your counsellor because they just can't see where you're coming from. You know, different horses for different courses, I suppose. Anyway, it was clear to me right then and my know-it-all mind that this wasn't going to work. So I gave up and I continued on my self-destructive path of rampage. Job after job, I'd get sacked from them all. It was kind of my story throughout my young adult life. I got sacked from everywhere for being wrecked. Not for my work ethic, because I'm a grafter, but shit I used to do when I was outside of work. It was just madness. And anyway, um, this particular bender continued for a good three years. Um, taking drugs, raving, partying. It was all so much fun. I could be who I wanted to be. No restrictions, talk shit to decent people, and have a real good time. Why would I ever want this to end? 
I've been kept under close control all of my life and I was finally free. And I suppose I abused my freedom and in turn screwed my life up. I suppose after this, I had episode after episode, some darker than others. I'd get involved in relationships and hurt people physically and emotionally. I'd go on benders and lose my head for days. I was a mess looking back, but I felt connection and belonging to those friends that I was getting wrecked with. They became like family, a family I'd never known. But this couldn't continue. Um, I got to 21 and um, my mum had kicked me out and me and a friend, we decided we were leaving my hometown. I made a decision that I was going to move away and get away from the drugs and the lifestyle that I was living. And I got a job on a holiday park. Before that, I actually ran away to Spain and got mugged, so I had to come back. But that is another story. <laughs> so back to the holiday park. I lasted two weeks before an old mate come got me and brought me back home to get back on the session. But luckily, the park, the park phoned me a few days later and my mum took me straight back. I stayed here for three years. There's a bit of a theme with this three, isn't there? Uh, before getting sacked. <laughs> I then bounced to another park and another park and another park. Um, I finally crashed and burnt after being sacked a fourth time. And after this fourth time, as soon as I got back home, I just went on a massive bender like the one beforehand. And my best mate at the time, he could see what I was doing and he knew that I couldn't keep doing this to myself. So he actually came and got me from my mum's house took me to his, which was down in my head, and made me spend a week drink and drug free <laughs> and applying for jobs because I was just at rock bottom yet again. I'd managed to get another job. Of course I did. <laughs> and when I went, I made a con conscious decision. I remember driving to Great Yarmouth at the time that this was it for me. I was cleaning up my act. And whilst at this job, I, of course, had an episode and it was after a breakdown. Um, I was really bad. My mom and brother actually drove the, the country to get me. When I did return back to work a week later after sorting my head out, I immediately slipped back into my old pattern. And my manager at the time, he actually put me in his car and he made me go to Addicts Anonymous. <laughs> no joke. Um, I was shit in my pants. There was no way I was sitting in a circle and standing there saying, my name's Sarah and I'm an alcoholic. No chance. It just wasn't happening. So imagine my delight when uh, they tell me I can get one-to-one -one counselling. Um, I went along and I met this counsellor. I was very dubious, of course, because what had happened before. And she was awesome. I mean, I had to have all my bloods tested once a month to make sure that I wasn't abusing any substances. And I, I did it. This counsellor was so good. She motivated me to be better, to do better and to stay away from the alcohol. And it was down to this lady that I actually sorted myself out. I went to her for just over a year and it was the best counselling that I'd ever had, even to this day, except for the, you know, the lady that I saw just recently. Um, and I also took a course of antidepressants, which I stopped taking on my own accord, um, only because I forgot to go and get a prescription and then I couldn't be bothered. But I felt fine that old chestnut. Honestly, although I've had drug benders since that day, I have never gone on a pure alcohol session and lost my head for three days. I mean, I, you know, I used to drink myself to oblivion every night, but I don't, I mean, I can go two weeks, three weeks without a drink now. And that has been that way since then. Drugs, on the other hand, was a different story, but the alcohol, since this lady's intervention, I've never 
felt the need to drink every day. And definitely not on a school night because <laughs> I, I can't handle it the next day. I bet there's a few people who won't believe what I've just said, but it's true. <laughs> can't do it. So yeah, that stint of counting actually sorted me out for another three years. And yeah, in those three years, I got into a relationship. And when things started getting rocky, I recognised these patterns from before. I knew it was my problem and not the lad that I was seeing. So I went to the doctors and again started a course of antidepressants and waited to see a counsellor. I had six sessions with a lady and she was lovely, but it wasn't life changing. We just went over what happened in my childhood and with so much going on and had gone on, it took four sessions to get it all out. So, you know, it did help, but it, I didn't feel any better for it. So I continued on in my righteous attitude, blaming dad for everything and thinking the world owed me something. Just because the alcoholism had stopped doesn't mean my anger and resentment had. I did continue taking the antidepressants for around 18 months and it really did seem to work, even with having a volatile relationship, shall we say. But in this time, things being so good, I'd applied for a new job with the company that I told you about before with the anxiety and I managed to land my dream job. I was on top of the world. I had written myself a five-year plan when I left my best mates, what I just told you about, and my five-year goal was making it to a certain position which I'd just got and I'd managed to do it in four years. So I was so proud of myself. I thought, yes, this is it. I am finally on my way. At this point, I was drug-free well, I had the occasional smoking and, and my drinking was nowhere near as bad as it was before. Admittingly, probably a little bit too much at times, especially whilst in the volatile relationship, but it was nowhere near as bad as what I had been. When I moved up to this new job, I got to the end of the, my box of antidepressants and I was so busy that I didn't have time to think about anything else. And I honestly felt like I didn't need them. Like, you know, I'm on top of the world. I've come this far. I've made it. So I don't need them. And if I'm honest, the antidepressants, they did make me feel like I was weak, like I couldn't cope on my own. Um, so I did. I made the decision to come off them. And I can honestly say that I didn't feel depressed after this for a couple of years until I had the breakdown and it all came crashing down around me and knocked me for six leaving me with no choice but to deal with it once and for all and stop papering over the cracks or sessioning over the cracks in my case. So that, in a crazy nutshell, I hope I didn't lose you there, is the cause of the depression and how it affected my life. I have purposely left out some categories as that will all come further down the line. I don't want to bombard you with it all today. Um, and I must add that I don't share my story for sympathy or paint myself in any light or anything like that. It is just from my perspective as to what happened. And I'm learning from it each and every day. And I do feel that my trauma was given to me for a reason, for this reason. I'm not saying that you all have to believe that, but that's what I believe. I believe I was given this life for a reason. And that is why I've chosen to do what I've done with it, like becoming a coach and this podcast. Let's get on to how I turned it all around. So you've heard about the, the, the breakdown and everything else like that. And I may lose a few of you in this next part, but I have to share it. There is no other way. It is the main reason that I have managed five years. Yes, five years 
without a depression wipeout. Lol. <laughs> I have used these techniques and tools each and every day, and I just, I just have to share them with you. Even if you don't wish to believe or get into the into the universe and the law of attraction, please do listen to these tools I will share and how I managed to pull myself out the black hole and keep myself out. I told you earlier that I believe that depression is a story we believe about ourselves due to a trauma that occurred in our life. Well, let's look at that. If it is just a story that we believe, that's good news because a story can be rewritten and beliefs can be changed. That, my friends, is a fact because I've done it. <laughs> when I first started this journey, the first thing I found that elevated me and gave me the strength to grow and move forward was this lovely little book by an incredible lady called Louise Hay. Maybe you've heard of her. But if not, please do check out her book. It's called You Can Heal Your Life because it certainly healed mine. With this book, I learned how to love myself. And with this, everything changed for me. I don't want to bang on about self-love too much as it is a season all of its own. And I'll be sharing exercises from the book itself. So look out for that season. But another thing that really enabled me to shift my thinking and my perspective was gratitude. It really does work. And like I've said before, even if you think you have nothing to be grateful, you honestly do. It was through self-love and gratitude, along with exercise, good food, drinking lots of water, meditation, and most importantly, no drink or drugs, I began to really shift my thought process. All of a sudden, I was excited to wake up each day. I had passion, I had purpose, and all it took was a few simple things and thoughts that changed each day. In theory, it is reprogramming your brain, but you think about it. All the programs and everything else that you've got running through your brain have been put there by someone else. Think about it. Think about those trail of thoughts that you have. Are they put there by somebody else? Who was it who told you those things? Have a good think about it. And then take back control and reprogram your brain for the way in which you want to feel and what you want to see in the world. It really is that easy. Or is it? <laughs> it sounds simple in theory and all the gurus will tell you to just get on and do it. But it can be a difficult thing to begin to do. By doing the work, you're going to uncover things that you may not be ready for in that moment. And that's OK. And that then could then become a stumbling block or you could uncover blocks that needed removing and take another step forward. One thing, though, and I will say it isn't for the faint hearted. You have to be committed. You have to be so sick of where you are and the state of your life. You have to be willing to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror and start with you. I'm sorry, but it has to start with you for you to begin piecing back your life. No one can do it for you. There is no magic formula, as I've said. And also, no one said anything worth having was easy. And let's be honest, if it was that easy, there'd be no need for these podcasts. It's a long road. I remember just after the breakdown in 2016 and hitting rock bottom for the last time, a friend said to me, he'd actually enjoyed a breakdown many years before, he said it could take two years to heal. And right then I knew I was ready. I had to throw my hands up, give up and surrender to my mind. I had to go within and find out what was causing this agony and constant battle. 
each time before then, when I stood at the crossroads of opportunity in recovery, um, you know, take the long road and face my demons or jump back into the rat race and battle on in some way. I felt if I chose the former, I'd be a failure. I would have to let the past win. I needed to man up and crack on. Plus, I had no patience and I wanted to be fixed and I wanted it now. <laughs> but this time was different. I was prepared to take the time and do it properly. I realised that I had been wrong all these times. By keep taking this approach and battling on and manning up, I was prolonging the inevitable. One day I had to face what I'd been through and what I had created. When I finally chose the long road and surrendered to whatever it was that was happening to me, could I finally look back at my life as an objective rather than being in the thick of it the whole time? I could begin to see what needed fixing, what needed tackling and what I needed to hold my hands up to and ask for forgiveness for. <laughs> there was a list. <laughs> I could now make a start on healing. Another key thing I found with depression is you have to face it. Don't keep pushing it down. I remember um, one lady described it to me um, in the Minds um, self-esteem group that I did. She described it as pushing a beach ball down under, under the sea. It keeps popping back up no matter how long you hold it down for. It's a brilliant little metaphor there for you. Try not to suppress it. Tackle it head on. It hurts, but it's you've got to do it. So let's get on to the tools then. First thing I'd like you to try is this. In the spirit of learning to love yourself, I want you to go to the mirror and look into your eyes and tell yourself you love yourself. See how that feels. I know for me, I couldn't do it at first. I cried, I physically couldn't say those words. At the time, I couldn't look at myself, let alone say I loved you because I hadn't looked in the mirror for months. The sight of myself actually made me feel quite icky. I was that, what's the word? I was that self-loathing at that time. But I promise in time, if you keep practicing, you'll be able to do it. Just if you can, just give it a go. Give it a go now. Go and look in the mirror and say, I love you, whatever your name is, and see how it feels. Um, and if you want to take the self-love thing a little bit further, over on my uh, coaching Instagram channel, Surrendered Minds, is a 30-day self-love challenge, which you can follow. In fact, I'll make it into a little, little video file for you all, and you guys can take part in it whenever you fancy. I'll get it on the Facebook group. And secondly, if you could try this, wherever you are sat right now, I want you to start thinking about all that you are grateful for. I know back in season one, I asked you to write a gratitude list of three things each morning. But the more you practice being grateful, the more you tune your brain for the brighter side of life. Do you get what I mean? <laughs> so the idea is that if you keep reaching for things you're grateful for, things you enjoy, things you love about life, and slowly but surely, your brain will automatically have a positive equilibrium, a positive outlook on life, if you didn't know. Keeping those depressive thoughts or triggers at bay, and soon you won't even notice them. Now, what I'm about to say is a little on the controversial side. It is my belief with social media, reality TV, and so on, that television and the like are in fact having an enormous effect on our mental health, especially depression. We are seeing a snapshot of an influenced life or airbrushed models or photoshopped images and led to believe that this is how people live, making us feel inadequate and unworthy. 
We touched on this slightly in the episode with Tamsin Chick, but I feel it's having a huge impact on her mental health and needs to be spoken about more. I will, in fact, dedicate a season to social media and get a professional who specialises in this area to come along and speak with us, because I think you'd be really shocked at what we find. But anyway, here's a little something for you if social media is bothering you. For me, social media was a huge trigger, and it is a fact look it up if you don't believe me, that social media was designed to become addictive. At first, when Facebook was invented, you'd get a couple of notifications in the morning, you'd feel loved, like, oh, so-and-so has just tagged me, isn't this beautiful? Tiny drops of dopamine were being dropped into your little brain each time you logged on. Now, our brains love a bit of dopamine. These chemicals make us feel great. We need them and we love them. Facebook know this. After all, social media is built with human psychology in mind. Now, however, the amount of notifications you get and all the psychological triggers across the tinterweb, a lot of people are now suffering stress, depression and anxiety because of social media. Instead of dropping dopamine, we are now getting cortisol, the stress hormone. Interesting. So anyhow, social media was encouraging me to feel comparison, judgy, jealous, inadequacy, and lack. The news also triggered me and caused my mental health to decline. The ads you see are made to hit your pain points and suck you in. It is one of the first things I was taught about Facebook marketing, and that is probably the reason I won't sell on social media. I don't like the ethos behind the ads. I don't like the the fact that we're manipulating people to part with their cash, sorry. (laughs) That's my view. So I took a stand. And first of all, I had a massive detox off social media. I removed the apps from my phone. I disabled notifications when I did reinstall them. It's totally okay if you can't do that. Um, But let's look at ways in which you can control your triggers. For me, the notifications are a massive bugbear, even now. You you get like 50-odd notifications a day. And then you turn on Facebook and it's all groups and challenges. Go in and unlike pages that trigger, leave groups that are irrelevant, unfriend people who are negative and conspiracy theorists and shit like that, unless you're into it, of course. Snooze people who you can't unfriend, Um, but find a way to bring those notifications down, meaning less chance of you checking it every five minutes. Secondly, go and change your ad settings. In the settings section of Facebook, you can't fully get rid of the ads, but you can control what you see. So for me, I removed all news, any conspiracy theories, anything that driven you, basically, anything and everything. I then said about finding positive, uplifting and motivational people to follow and see their posts every day. I made them favourites. That's also an option. You can make people favourites. Um, so I would see these posts first or my friends who were always upbeat. Sooner or later, my feed was full of things that inspired me and made me want to go out and chase my dreams. And last but not least, this is the final thing I'm going to tell you. I lied, but it's possibly the most important component of all. Exercise, diet, water and fresh air. You know it deep down. You know that all of these takeaways, glasses of wine, sitting in your pee all day, you're stale. You are mouldy. And that, my friend, is part of the reason you feel so shitty. As I said earlier, depression could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But even if exercise is a little too much for you right now, let's start with what is easy. Drinking a litre 
of water a day to start with is is good enough it's a great starting point water is so good for you and it helps to flush out your system eat right my motto when i was in recovery was if it didn't grow i didn't eat it and that meant only veg fruit salad dairy and meat no takeaways no processed shit no crisps <laughs> anything like that it needed to be wholesome foods that consisted of carbs you know protein fiber your body needs to become your main focus. Watch what you drink, eat, do, and also just as important as any of that is how you talk to yourself. Watch the language in which you use. If you've noticed in my podcasts, I don't say my depression, my anxiety, my breakdown. I say the anxiety, the depression, the breakdown, because it's not me. It's something that's happening to me. It is not a part of me. So it is not my anxiety. Language is really important. Then something which most of us can do, maybe except those who may be shielding right now, but is get out there and go for a walk. Go out and be mindful on your walk, taking the trees, the sounds, the smells, take it all in. And all of this is a great foundation for mental health, not only depression. These are basic things we can all do each day to keep ourselves in check and fend off any depressive thoughts or feelings we may experience. Exercise is incredibly important. It sets off endorphins, serotonin, dopamine, all the feel-good chemicals we need to keep our minds and bodies healthy. We speak about this in depth in my fitness and diet season coming up very soon and how I swapped my counsellor for a PT. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. But for now, though, that is all for today's show. That is my story in a nutshell. Christ would be here a couple of days <laughs> if you wanted me to give it you all. Um, so, yeah, that's my story on depression, how it affected my life how I overcame it, and what I do to keep it at bay each and every day. I hope it helped you, and join me next week for an interview with a survivor of depression, Kirsty Fraser. Kirsty survived depression and is now a qualified counsellor and a student of psychology, an inspirational story at its best. You've been listening to the It's A Crazy Life podcast. My name's Sarah and I've been your host. This podcast is dedicated to raising awareness for mental health whilst helping to end this stigma.